This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Every once in a while, I revisit one of our virtual events that we host at Books and Books and I'm stopped in my tracks. The great Jacqueline Woodson writes, Blitz Bazawule is a phenomenal storyteller, and the scent of burnt flowers is at once deeply real and surprisingly magical. I'm truly blown away by this novel, she says. Me too. And his conversation with Diana Gray, best-selling young adult, fantasy author of Beasts of Prey, works on every level. And I'm happy to bring it to you on this edition of the literary life. I'm so excited to to talk with you about um, the scent of burnt flowers and just and to just like ask you a billion questions. Is that okay? Oh, absolutely! It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. If you could just maybe pitch your book to us, um, to those watching who don't know about who maybe know you from other settings but don't know about your work as an author, if you could just pitch your your book and what it's about and then um if you could talk about what inspired it that's that's probably the most popular question i think we we as authors get is where, where did the inspiration for this book come from absolutely so the set of burnt flowers follows the story of melvin and bernadette an african-american couple who find themselves in an unfortunate situation in the south and they have to flee um to ghana uh because um Melvin, um's former college buddy, is the new president of that country. And they hope that when they arrive, he'll grant them asylum. Um, however, what happens is that upon arrival, the country is in free fall. And uh, while they're pursued by a persistent FBI agent, they have to lean on a bunch of different people uh, for help and solace. And one of those people end up being Kwesi. Kwesi is a local uh, musician, a high life musician was on his way to perform for the president. And so they find themselves on this precarious journey, which is supposed to bring comfort and safety, but soon spirals into madness and chaos. Um, and so that's the book. Um, the inspiration really for me, so I always say, you know, art for me is I do it because I need it first, you know, and I need it to, to read this book. It's just a book that I've wanted to read for a very long time, a book that speaks about where I'm from, which is Ghana originally, um, but also this very important period where um, Black people globally were finding themselves, um, uh, finding their voices. Um, and, and this is the 60s. Um, civil rights was a thing that had just been born here in the United States and independence movements in, in a lot of the global South, but certainly 
in Ghana. Um, and so I've always wanted to tell a story uh, also about, you know, the mythical figure who is Kwame Nkrumah, our very first president, whom very few people know about, but is often credited as the father of Pan-Africanism um, and, and really, um, you know, was instrumental in spreading independence fever throughout uh, the sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and so it, all of that just was something that I've wanted to read for a very long time. Also the mix of mythos and, and, and magic is something that I've, you know, grown up as a storyteller, uh, really finding as a very unique voice. This book, in addition to having just beautiful language and prose and syntax, it really pulls you from the opening line. And I just want to read it because I thought it was so, so good. And I have questions for you, Flitz, about it. You got um, it. I have it. Oh my gosh, I had it pulled up. There it is. Okay. So my copy is not here, but I have I have a sneaky secret uh, secret version of it. And I just want to read the opening line. Got so it. this is okay. this is chapter one, Accra, nineteen sixty six. And the opening line is just Bernadette awoke to the sound of a loud blast and thought Melvin had shot himself. Like what a line. That is fantastic. Um and my question to you as a writer is, did that line, was? did you always know that was the first line or did you have to write a few drafts before you came to that? I always knew that was the first line. I always knew, and it, you know, I, I always, you know, in everything I do, music, film, um, you know, visual art, anything I do, I always look for the pull. Mm -hmm. Whatever stops you in your tracks, that's really for me and a lot of my favorite writers right like this, you know, where, you know, like the opening is just such a jarring opening. You are dropped in the middle of something and you have questions immediately. You go, why did Melvin shoot himself? Did Melvin shoot himself? What's happening? Um, why am I in a cry? You know, like, so I always love to just begin with this very disorienting beginning because I feel like the audience need to be jarred out of their, um, uh, lol, you know, it's what I call it. You know, you get a book, it's this beautiful cover. You're going, okay, I wonder what this is. And I just want you to stop in your track. So absolutely, I'd, I'd probably had that line probably first before I even begun. I just knew that that would be the beginning. And did your did the title come to you in that same way? Because it struck me, just as you said, this you have this beautiful cover and this almost poetic title and then you open with this really visceral, jarring start, and it's such a beautiful contrast. So I wonder, if, did you have the title for your book as well from the beginning? I did, I did have the title for a while as well. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, I'm a, I really love extreme contrasts. You know what I mean? Like it's, again, it's how I've made all my art. It's just figuring out what are the two things that seem to live in, in polar opposites, you know, and, and figure out how they can live together. I mean, when you think about flowers, I mean, they are the most gorgeous, beautiful things. When you think about burnt flowers, however, that's a completely different thing, right? Most people haven't even thought about what that smells like, what that is, you know? And so, you know, and that's a lot of ways what this book is. It's a, it's a juxtaposition of these very heavily contrasting worlds that are often at odds with each other and one another. So um, absolutely the title was something that I've, I've had for quite some time as well. And really was trying to figure out, um, as you said, it's so poetic. I, I've been trying to figure out what, how it lives in context. And when I, when I heard about the story, uh, which I 
I wouldn't give any spoilers um, about Kwame Nkrumah and what happened to him. Um, I just figured out, I figured that was the perfect story to use uh, through this lens of, 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 of a title. I love it. I love it so much. And it's, it's just so thoughtful. And I really, again, as a writer, just very selfishly, I, I appreciate that. Um, Thank you. You've sort of alluded to this, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. Um, you are a filmmaker. You are a musician. Now you are an author. Um, these are all creative processes. These are all artistic processes. But I wonder how you would compare the process of, say, creating a film or in the studio, creating, writing and creating a song, how you would compare those processes to the process of writing a book and, and a novel at that. Yes. So, you know, I mean, I, I, first I start with the art of storytelling, right? And for me, that sits at the center of everything I do. And it really just starts with, you know, what's the story and what's the me the right medium for it, you know? And, and there's some mediums that are just not adequate for certain stories, there's certain mm -hmm. stories that are just better musically, there's certain stories that are better visual, there's certain stories that are better in the literary form. Right. And so I've, I've always kind of allowed the story to lead, tell me what medium it needs to take shape in. I think the biggest difference for me writing in it's my debut novel, you're, you're like, you've got two under your belt. So you're way more familiar in terms of this process. But this world of being able to tell nonlinear stories and being able to jump worlds and times and spaces, I think the literary space is unmatched, creative because the audience is so fluid in how they accept time, space, continuum in a way that I could never do it in a song. I could never do it in a film because of the linear nature and how those narratives work. You know, I've, I've tried my best to be nonlinear in my filmmaking processes, but it's only so far I can go. And so the literary world for me was just just gave me so much in terms of freedom and the ability to zigzag through worlds and times and spaces um, and realms for that matter in a way that I probably could never do in another medium. So that's kind of was the biggest, I'll say contrasting element um, in terms of my general work and, and, and creative endeavors. Um, yeah, it, it, was, it was a lovely process though. I enjoyed it. Just out of curiosity, how long how long did it take you to write? This was your first book. How long did it take you? It was fast. It was fast. You know, I I I kind of in a way compartmentalized all these stories before in my head. Like I knew the Melvin Bernadette story. I knew the President Nkrumah story. I knew the Quasi story. I knew the Agent Hughes story. I knew all these things, but I'd kind of processed them individually and separately. Um, and so I never really. I never really um, thought about it from a, um, a full uh, narrative arc. I, I just started writing and I found that all these characters were interfacing with one another and, and, and wanted to be in conversation with one another. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, ultimately, I think I banged out the first draft in less than two months, maybe a month, maybe. Yeah, something like that. Where I was just like, and it was just like, you know, but also I have to be kind of uh, transparent. It was COVID, you know. Yeah. Um, we were all home. There's nothing to do. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, I had just finished my section of 
Beyonce's Black King. And we were actually going back to South Africa to shoot some more and everything ground to a halt. And I just found myself in the space of not knowing what would come of that work we had just done. It was, it was beautiful, it was gorgeous, but nobody knew what would happen because we were, it was incomplete. Um, and, or at least we thought it was incomplete. It ended up not being incomplete because the universe works like that. But um, at the time we thought it was incomplete and I was home and I was tired and I was just, I was looking for something else to do that was would challenge my storytelling ability. And um, again, the story offered so many layers of, of backstory that I knew only a book could allow me to do that. And so once I got in, it was quite swift. So that's so that's so amazing. And and you hear like everybody has a slightly different process. A lot of times we talk about plotters versus pantsers, people who plot everything out and people who just like go with it. And so it sounds like you're a pantser, like you really just wrote it by the seat of your pants. Like you just, you had it in your head and wrote it. Is that right? That's it. That's it. And personally, I think it's, again, like you said, everyone's got their process, which I love and respect. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely one of those that just, you know, cause my theory is always, what's the worst, you know? What's the worst? I mean, ultimately, I always process work that I do based on a very simple, I'll call it ethos, which is just, does this work deserve to exist? And if it does, I just do it. And sometimes it's brilliant. Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's not good. You know, occasionally it works, you know, but ultimately I, I feel like none of it matters. I think. The only thing that matters is the work deserves to exist. And I'd never read anything like The Scent of Burnt Flowers before. I'd never read anything that was so continental African, but also diasporic African. Um, I'd never read anything that was so, you know, um, hyper real, but also incredibly mystical. I never read anything like it. And so my thing was just write it and see what happens. And a lot's happened. So here, here we are talking about we it. Here we are. And that really makes me think, and I, I paraphrase what she said, but it makes me think of something that Toni Morrison said, which was essentially, if you don't see the story you're looking for, then you must write it. Absolutely. Um, and that's Absolutely. exactly what it is. Um, it's, it's such a, and it's, I love, I mean, for personal reasons, as a, as a product of the diaspora, it, it meant a lot to me, these stories that, that connect, because we know that historically there have been efforts to create division among different communities of black people. And we know why um, divide and conquer. Um, I kind of want to use that as a segue because, and you mentioned it before, Kwame Nkrumah is a really important character in the scent of burnt flowers. And I was so excited to see that because I, you know, I write in fantasy, it's a very different space, but I have a character in my book named after Kwame Nkrumah and I've been to Ghana and I've seen wow. his memorial and studied him and was just, wow. I'm so I'm always so hyped to see him in literature. Yeah. Um, you did an interview with CBS not that long ago, um, and in that interview, you talk about how, for you, I think you even just mentioned it a second ago, how Kwame Nkrumah was almost like a mythical figure to you growing up. Um, and so, I, I kind of want you to expand on that. Like, what made you choose to put him in your story? Like, how how did your view of him as a child, you know, affect the writing? I 
if you, yeah, if you could just like kind of tell us more about this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, like any other public figure who was so important um, to the transformation of the world, they're often polarizing viewpoints. You know, some people think he was a despot. Some people think he was a messiah. Some people think, I mean, there's so many versions of Kwame Nkrumah. Same way there's so many versions of Fidel Castro. So, you know, it's just, there's so many, Che Guevara. There are all these versions of one person. And I've, I've always found it fascinating, you know, the human ability to create, you know, these mythos and honestly hyperbole when it comes to often the mundane. And I think we do that as, as, a, as a species because the ordinary is boring to us, you know? And so any opportunity we get, we grossly exaggerate. Um, and I found this to be true about Kwame Nkrumah growing up. It was just, it was all of this great grandness about this person who was just a man who had a mission and executed his mission um, and hearing stories about him around dinner tables, around friends, around different, depending on who your friend was or their parents' political leanings, they had nothing but positive things or nothing but negative things to say. And so I've, I've always found that to be truly incredible, you know, as, as, as just the human condition and how we process, um, other humans and their achievements. And so... Kwame Kuma for me was just a it was a it was a powerful pillar in the entire narrative, a powerful center for me. Um, was just to kind of try to figure out how, you know, an ordinary young man who travels to the United States for education becomes radicalized enough to understand that his people need him and he exacts this uh, uh, you know mission and 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 explores himself in the process and um finds himself at the crossroads of a much larger um global division which is the east versus west and a lot of people don't understand how much that period shaped the world as we know it today what led to the cold war and how the cold war created these blocks and how that continued these extra divisions and we're living through part of it right now philosophy, American philosophy, and how those are often at odds, but that's a very long game that's being played. And a lot of people don't think about the casualties of these two humongous superpowers going at it. And often lived in the global South, you know, and, and, and most people who suffered uh, the consequences of these giants that, that, that were at odds are people that are often forgotten. And so Kwame Nkrumah, for me, was an example of that, of someone who found himself at an, an unfortunate crossroads um, of, of polarizing thoughts. And, you know, for better or worse, he did what he believed. And, um, you know, you've been to the Muslim, you've been to Ghana, you know his impact. Um, but for a very long time, it wasn't honored. You know, it, it was looked at as, as pariah. And so for me, it was very, it was, it was great to also just make up um, just a lot of backstory. Because again, I, I grew up, you know, with like my grandmother's nocturnal stories, which are often full of, you know, exaggerations and hyperbole. And so 
that's always for me been more interesting than whatever was factual and whatever um, our teachers taught us. You know, I just felt like it was so cut and dry and I had no interest in it. And I'd always been interested in, you know, mythical figures as part of how we got independence. It's, like, it's more interesting to me, um, but I find that there's so much truth in them, you know? And so Kwame Nkrumah certainly as a center of the story allowed us to explore what was what could have been for me. Uh, this is one of the big questions I ask myself often. What could have been if Kwame Nkrumah's mission had succeeded? Um, what could have been if, you know, the diaspora had a home, the kind of home that he was trying to build for the likes of Melvin and Bernadette? Um, and so just very interesting for me to explore that. Oh, I love it. I just, I could talk, to, I could have a whole sidebar about Kwame Nkrumah. He's, he's such an interesting figure. And unfortunately, at least my experience, he's someone I do, I didn't get to learn about until I elected to take, um, you know, African and African-American studies courses in college. I mean, he wasn't taught at all for me in, at least I, I grew up in the South. So it just, I'm gonna I'm gonna restrain myself, but it's so fun to talk about him. Um, sure. I want to, you know, go into it a little bit more about the kind of the main characters of this story. Um, we have Melvin, we have Bernadette, we have Quest, we have Kwame Nkrumah. Was there a character? This is kind of a two-part question. Was there a character who was easy, like came very easy to you when you were writing them? You instantly kind of knew their story, and they were very easy to write. And further, was there a character? Who you found yourself relating to maybe more than the others? Oh, that's a tough question. I mean, you know, the the easy answer is Kwesi was probably the most familiar to me. Okay, uh, <laughs> I've a musician, you know, for like 10 years. I like my drummer obviously was never a T, but I I've, you know, we've we've had some really interesting shenanigans on the road. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of that finds its way in the book. Um, but also this yearning to come to America, you know what I mean? And, and, it, and what that means. I mean, that was something that as, as a kid growing up, I was completely enamored by um, American culture in general. I think that's very common globally, especially in the 90s when specifically black American culture via hip hop was like such a strong global voice and gave millions across the globe an identity. Um, mm -hmm. Public Enemy came to Ghana in 1992, which is such a radicalizing moment for so many of us. We we saw people who looked like us, dressed like us, um, um, representing with the you know the medallions and the and the African medallions and the dashikis and the kufis. These were things that we thought were archaic and didn't really matter. And here, these guys who had commanded the attention of the world repping us you know and, and it gave a lot of us confidence I, and i've traveled i've had the privilege of traveling and touring globally and you find these stories in brazil you find these stories in cuba you find these stories everywhere mm -hmm. of, of how important african-american hip-hop culture specifically um gave confidence to millions globally who were looking for that um and so you know for me quasi was just like a an easy an easy one to write because i i understood what his motivations were um, you know, Bernadette was not as easy, you know, it's, and, and this is a factor of, 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 you know, not being, you know, not having lived the story of a black woman, you know, specifically. And, and I was really fortunate to have a phenomenal editor 
in Chelsea Johns, who is an African-American woman who helped me find things that I had blind spots on. And so I was very fortunate in that. Agent Hughes was another that was tough to write because, you know, a, a Polish-American FBI agent isn't always, isn't as accessible. So that was very, you know, it was, it was, it was a challenge to figure him out. Melvin was somewhat easy. Melvin was somewhat easy because, you know, I'm very familiar myself with, you know, what it looks like to have a dream deferred. You know, I have family like that. I have friends like that who had all these great grand goals and that one decision kind of unravels them. And Melvin was an interesting character study for me, for myself. Just like, you know, thinking about these very little things, the trauma that's unhealed, the trauma that's un, uh, unearthed um, in, in quite a dysfunctional way uh, because you haven't dealt with it. And Melvin was kind of like that character for me was just trying to look at myself and go, what are the things that I haven't dealt with? And what are the things that can easily unravel you in a way that they start small and they slowly build. And by the time you realize they've become these monsters in your closet that you can't get away from. And so very interesting character studies in all of them, I would say. Yeah. Oh, I'm smiling too because that this idea of, of trauma becoming monsters uh, plays in in my books too. Beasts of Prey and and also I think too like just as you said for me for me the hard characters were writing the black males because that's out of my lived experience. So again, I'm just I'm just vibing. I I feel like I'm like I, yes, I, 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 love, I love and appreciate that. And and again, I mean just sidebar just to say how incredible your work is as well, just in terms of black imaginative thought, which isn't really, you know, I mean, to be honest, this is, it's it's new, not new in the terms of, we've known this about ourselves. We've known we've got an imagination and it's brilliant, it's magical. In terms of the world having an opportunity to access that is, is something that's rad. So kudos on all the brilliant work because it's necessary. Thank you. I um, there's another author. She's from Sierra Leone named Namina Forna, who who I was talking with her, and she said that she and she was she was so right. We're we're living a renaissance right now as Black creators. Or just yeah. as you said, nothing's new, but we're being given the opportunity in a very unprecedented way to tell our stories, and they don't have to be the same. Just one kind of story. We're getting to write in sci-fi, in fantasy, in nonfiction, in adult fiction, in children's picture books, um, and it's such a beautiful thing to be a part of. I'm just, I count myself so lucky and I'm so glad, you know, and then we get to have this conversation and we're adding to this canon of, of black literature, um, it, which it's just such a, such a beautiful thing to be a part of. Um, I guess in that respect, I wanted to ask you too, you know, this is a book um, that is full of magical realism. And I see for me as a fantasy author, I find that hard because magical realism is magic, but it is rooted in this this real world. And for me, that's harder because I'm just like, I want to make up everything so I don't have to deal with the responsibilities yeah. of yeah. writing in the real world. Um, that makes me, you know, I'm, I'm curious, what made you decide to make this, to, to put magical realism in your book? Did you always know? Is it something that just sort of organically happened as you were writing? No, I, I mean, I, I, I go back to like how I understand story. You know, I've, it's always been a bit of both. It's always been, you know, a, a lot of real, a lot of imagination, a lot of magic. And it starts really again with my grandmother's stories that, you know, I grew up in Ghana at a time where 
electricity was sporadic. And so a lot of times you know, there were power, power cuts and you had to sit, you know, at 6 p.m. Your, your night's over. It's like the sun goes down. It's a wrap. You know, fortunately, my, my grandmother had an imagination. I spent a lot of time with her and um, her stories were these like incredible nocturnal stories of like creatures that would become human that were, you go, wait, but I feel like I read that in a newspaper too. And it was just, it were all these things that were just such an amalgam of brilliant, imaginative thought that I can't honestly make any work in all truthfulness without that being the heart and soul of the work. This idea that as black folk, we think of so many things as a multi-realm um, experience. We're never just what we can see. I mean, I remember growing up, there was this whole mythos that if you saw money on the floor and picked it up, you'll turn into a piece of yam and your mom's gonna buy you at the market. And in my life, I believe that to be true. So whenever I saw money on the ground, I didn't pick it up. I mean, but there are hundreds, if not thousands, of these little idiosyncratic elements that we grow up around and take really for granted, you know? And, you know, it's like, you know, like my mom, like I can't put my mom's purse on the ground, you know what I mean? Because it, it, it meant something else, you know? It's like, but it's just it's on the ground. But no, 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 no. It was like, really believe. And then, yeah. you know, and so there are, there are all these things that we grow up around that are incredibly, I mean, make no sense to other people in terms of other cultures, but it's so central in the way we see ourselves and the way we see stories and the way we see um, pretty much everything. And so every creative endeavor that I've been fortunate enough to engage in, that's often the lens that I started, which is simply what is the what is the seen and unseen nature of this moment we're living? And sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not, but figuring out how to, especially in a historical fiction novel, figuring out how to weave all that together was truly a joy because it took me back to being a kid, listening to my grandmother's stories and going, wow, if she was writing a book, it'll be just like this, you know? Oh, that's so beautiful. And Again, I, I just, I can't help but smile because you really see how interconnected like black people are. You know, you, you if I'm not, you grew up in Accra, right? That's Accra, yeah, absolutely. Accra's so fun. Um, it's it's wild. You grew up in Accra, I grew up in Atlanta. And yeah. I have, my, my, my grandma came, she came and lived with us because she believed that children should be raised by family. And I have stories from her. And it's, yes. it's beautiful that, you know, and there are things that I do at 29 to this day, because my grandma said, when I was little, you don't do certain things, you do certain Absolutely. things. Absolutely. We grew up on different continents and we yeah. have this shared thing about the power of grandma and grandma stories. And Absolutely. my cheeks hurt because I'm smiling so <laughs> big, but it, I, I have genuine joy in my heart and just, oh, that's, that's so beautiful. Um, Vice versa. <laughs> Very genuinely, just like this is this is so cool. Um, all right, so one fun thing. So you know, fans of historical fiction will enjoy this. Fans of magical realism, but there is something in this book that I'm a huge fan of. Like, if you tell me a book has this this thing, I'm gonna pick it up, and that is the love triangle situation, which adds oh, quite a bit. Yes. Um, 
So I want to know, like, well, yes, did you decide from the beginning that you were going to have a love triangle? Um, how do yeah. you feel? Like, I, 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 yeah, I'll, I'll let you just talk about the love triangle. I have questions, but just- No, but no, ask the questions. <laughs> ask well, them. You know, well, like, you know, you put this love triangle and obviously it affects three, three people um, significantly, but it affects, I mean, it, it changes the book. And so I wondered, you know, what, how does the love triangle- did you have it in mind and did you, you know, how did it kind of ripple affect the themes and kind of how the story went? Yes. I mean, I mean, like you said, love triangles are always such juicy places to write from because we all, we all know what that feels like. You know what I mean? Like whether it's lived or unlived, like there's just a knowing, you know, when it, when it gets complex and really for, you know, when we first meet Melvin, and this, I'll try to avoid as many spoilers as possible. When we first meet Melvin, you know, all he has is Bernadette. You know, that's it. Like, mm-hmm. You know, it's his first real love. It's her first real love. And so that's like a thing that the audience is always rooting for. You know, it's like, it's like we want people to stay together. We don't want them to fall apart because we want to stay together with the people we love. Right. And so that's just we're just projecting our wants and needs on these characters. But what starts to happen is when Quasi is introduced into the story, you start to see, and this is very common in how relationships break down, is all the flaws that may have been muted in in one party become amplified. And all the things that one couldn't see, because you finally have a comparative analysis. You can finally say, compared to this person, that person has these qualities, right? Versus if you were just with that person, you're completely content because that's all you know and that's all you want. And I find that when Quasi is introduced into the picture, there's so many things, so many of Melvin's qualities that are uncoming become so obvious. I mean, he doesn't help either because he's a man unraveling, but it's exacerbated by this jealousy. And jealousy is such a, it's one of those, flaws that are so all there it is it's paralyzing yeah you know because because it's not one that you can fully cop to you can't say i'm jealous nobody ever says i'm envious or i'm jealous of you know it's just it's it's an embarrassing feeling like you're not supposed to feel jealous i mean we all feel it at every corner we're not supposed to feel envy but we all do and so kind of what what happens in this book is and i knew that i needed an engine that would help advance not only the deterioration of this larger world which was kind of the larger metaphor right was this collapse of country and people but the collapse of this internal trio that you were hoping will work in harmony to find a way out the minute you introduce love and lust you know into this mix it was the inevitable unravel that would happen. And it sped it up considerably. But it also gave me, as a writer, an engine to write from. You know, there was an external engine of how can people flee to safety? And there was a, there was an ex, that was the external engine. And there was an internal engine of how does this live triangle exacerbate people's character and their character flaws being unraveling in front of us? You know, ultimately... We don't know who Bernadette chooses. And I and I I I like that. You know, I like that. I mean, some people have different opinions. Some people think they know who she chooses. 
some people worry <laughs> that I left it open ended. I mean, I've gotten all types of, but I but I like that because nothing's clean and nothing is in a perfect ribbon and bow. Life is complex. It's it's multiple layers, especially in and out of this realm. You know what I mean? And so and so I I ultimately had so much fun working with that engine, I should say. And it's, you know, I've, I've got, I published one book, second book is coming out soon. And there, it is kind of a process to learn to let go of your books, especially when you have these endings where you don't have a conclusive, this is what happened. Um, and it does become everybody's story. You know, there are some people who will say, this is what happened. There are people who are like, this would have never happened. And it's beautiful because actually you've written one book, but in a way, there are a thousand stories now. There are a thousand endings to it, and every single one is valid. And that's 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 art. I have um, a question for you though. When when you wrote Beast of Prey, did you know that it was a continuum? Did you know that you were going on? Were you was it clear to you that there was more to that story? Oh, um, originally I tried to write the entire trilogy in one book because I that I had gotten bad advice from the internet, as you do, um, where I thought, you know, I'm an unknown name. No one's going to want to buy multiple books. I better just put it all in one book. And it was actually my agent who said, no, this is more than one book. And it was like, as soon as he said it, a light got turned on and I was like, oh, I have permission to write more than one book. Wow. Um, so it's, it's interesting, the power of having good people and advocates around you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. And this is a standalone. Like you're, you're not planning to come back to it, are you? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, what I mean, I mean, that's what, that's what I'm asking because I mean, really, you know, on on some levels it's done, you know, but on some levels it's not. You've left you know? it. You've left it open to it. It's, it's, open. it's open. And and also, you know, because um, and some people might already be aware. And similar to what's happening with your book, uh, with Netflix developing it, I'm, I'm developing this book as an FX show, and so it's like uh, it's like there are places that I can go in the show that I maybe couldn't go with the book, or I hadn't even thought to go when I wrote the book. That opens up a whole new. I mean, I'm going to have a writer's room. I mean, it's going to be like it becomes really other people's story too, and they get to contribute and they get to see. You know, this thing where we have, we see the flaws in other people's work so much clearer than we see in ours, right? And so a lot of times, even when I do work, I really try to separate me from me. And I try to go, okay, that's me that wrote this. But now this is me that's criticizing it. And I try to do that with all my work. It's not easy because we lie to ourselves a lot as, as humans, <laughs> but, uh, but, it's, but it's great when you are collaborating and that's why you need a great, you know, editor. You need a great agent. You need people who can see the flaw better than you can uh, to help guide it. And um, I've had an incredible privilege of having people like that all around me throughout my work, um, throughout the different layers of work that I've done, who always help me see the flaws better. And working on a TV show off this book is only going to help me see um, so much more clearly where this book could go, could have gone if I had a, a team of uh, of the smartest people in the room helping me figure it out. So it's like a, it, it could be. This is not a yes or a no. Could um, be just like the ending. We don't know. And so you you kind of we we got into my question, which was obviously the ending was a huge shock, and it sounds like so you did you plan that? Did you 
know that you were going to end things? No, that I did not plan. That, that oh. I, no, 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 I did not. I thought I knew who she chose. So I got to the end and I was like, oh, oh I don't know. And, and if, and if oh. I don't know, then I don't say, you know? And if I don't say, then others can make it, figure it out yeah. for themselves based on who, you know, based on who they, who they feel is deserving or, or maybe neither of them are deserving. That's another thing. You know, it's like, it was just such an, it was freeing in a way for me to not lack myself to any particular ending. I know it's frustrating many because we, as humans, we just want, we want, we want the end to mean the end, the finite end. And I, I find that there, there's a multiplicity of endings, you know, the, things end completely differently um, based on perspective. You know, um, for some people, it's an ongoing thing. For some people, it's a finite thing. And so, no, I did not know that's how I wanted to end the book. I just know that when I got there, the book told me that's where it needed to end. So that was it. I, I love that you said, if I don't know, I don't say. It just, your your process sounds so incredibly freeing and just truly organic. Like you are, you're really in tune with where your head's at and you're just putting that on the paper, which, I mean, I'm very jealous because I'm like, Plots and graphs and dialogue, like you know. I mean, <laughs> I mean yeah, it's very. I, <laughs> I also don't want to come off as a full-on, you know. I just, you know, I just show up and do it. I mean, it, it's a lot of thought. I mean, but one thing I do do that I I really advocate for in all of us and all of our creative endeavors is to free ourselves of metrics and criticisms. You know, I mean, it's. Uh, it's taken me a very long time as a creative person to arrive at a place where I understand that my work is mine, you know, and it's for me first, because there's a world in which nobody might need my work. Does that mean that I stopped needing my work? Mm. You know, um, I made music for many years that nobody heard. I needed it, you know? And so at some point, I do believe that if you are truly in tune with the human experience, and you're not outside of it, and other people will. Sometimes it's 10 people. Sometimes it's a million people. Sometimes it's a bestseller in your case. Sometimes it's like 10 people showed up for it. Ultimately, what's the most important to me is that it filled something in you that needed to be filled. And it's exactly what you're saying. It's a Toni Morrison quote. It's like you write it because you need to read it. You compose it because you need to hear it. You shoot it because you need to see it. And ultimately, if you, again, if, if you are truly in tune with the human experience, then it's inevitable that others will gravitate towards it because they need it too, you know? But, but I feel like where we all often get tripped up is the metrics of how many people need it. Well, who cares how many people need it? You know, do you need it? And if you need it, then please believe it is valid and you do it. And it also forces you to examine yourself. What are your standards? Like, like you know, Ayana, what are your standards? Like, do you, do you, do you, are your standards excellent? Would you only give yourself excellence? Then you work hard as fuck until you get there. You know what I mean? Because that's your standard. If your standards are low and you make work that is, you know, it's, 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 it's like, what do you like to eat? If you're cooking for yourself, do you make a crappy meal? No, you do your best 
to make it great because it's for you. And that's how I think about art generally. I just feel like we make it because we need it and we don't cheat ourselves, you know, and we make it because we need it and we love it and we, and it, and it feels part of us that is gaping. And, and as long as we do it honestly and earnestly, I've never seen work done for yourself brilliantly, but the world didn't clamor to have because they needed it. And I'm certain that you writing Beast of Prey, that's how you process it or not, something you needed. You needed to get this voice out. You needed to read this book. And that's why you can read it a hundred times in your manuscript form. You can go through it and make all your changes because you need it. You know what I mean? So anyway, I, I, I felt it's worth saying. That's a whole word. Like I want to, I feel like I should be snapping like something. I love it. And it's refreshing. I mean, and it's true. We get, especially when when, this, when it becomes a professional endeavor, we get caught up in, in the metrics yes. of success, which as creatives can go all over the place. Like it's so hard to just de defer, define and determine what, what even is a success. Is it, uh, you know, copies sold? Is it the awards? Like there's just so many different moving goalposts. So it's so refreshing to hear. Um, I have one more question for you before I, I, I'm being a little selfish and asking all of mine before I turn it to the audience. Okay. But I, I want to ask you about research because you have lived, you were you know, born and raised in Accra in Ghana. This, this story takes place partially. You also lived in the US. Um, what was your research process like? It was, was a lot of this knowledge in your head and you saw it or did you have to go in and do a bit of research to kind of fill in some gaps or yeah? It was a bit of both, you know, I mean, a lot, again, a lot of it I've been accumulating over years, you know, it's just like, I've been enamored by the FBI for many years. And I find myself in these rabbit holes. I go, oh, well, I guess I'm done now. And I've absorbed as much as I can. I've, I've been enamored by, you know, the civil rights movement for years. And then I get enamored by the independence movements. Um, and I, and so ultimately I feel like there was a, there was a part of it that there was a base of knowledge you know, some of the factual elements I had to dig deeper to kind of figure out how chronologically our story was going to kind of uh, travel and live. But mm -hmm. um, ultimately, um, yeah, it was a bit of both. And I had fun. I I'm a research geek. I, 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 I love to be like in the lab. Like I remember like in college, I spent more time in the library than I spent in my classes. Like I just, I go off and I go, stuff that's completely irrelevant to any of my studies. I find myself just interested in knowledge. Just, just like, it's interesting that somebody took the time to accumulate this stuff, you know? And so that's always been me. And so I've all these little random things, you know, it's like the book just, the book sometimes gets so random, you know, with like some of our characters, you know, like our narcoleptic you know, newspaper man, our, you know, um, preacher who is completely, you know, there are all these characters that are like a great, a great amalgam of all of this kind of like exploration that I've done over years. And and, and, and I, I found it, it was so much fun to see how they all fit. That for me was kind of just the, the fun part. It was like, oh, this thing that I stumbled on when I was 12 years old, like in Achimota school matters now because like it lives perfectly with this other story that's running concurrent. I am also a research geek, which is why I'm like, um, I just recently did like a TikTok about Mansa Musa, just because I think Mansa Musa is really cool. And it's wild how many people don't know who he is. And like, 
I, I did some researching on Imperial West Africa earlier this year, and just just because I wanted to. And it's so it's interesting. It's just interesting. And people are looking at me like, why are you like, why are you so hyped about this? I'm like, because it's cool. It's just cool. Listen, I believe strongly in the power of story. I believe that the world is shaped by story. And I believe that, you know, we should always endeavor to tell it because we need it. We should also try our best to be as open to whatever medium a media is possible. I know that's a tough one for a lot of us. We lock into a medium and media and it kind of dominates our creative and we feel like every creative impulse has to be driven through this prism. I, when I was young, I used to visit my grandmother's farm up north. I'm, like my family's from the most northern part of Ghana. And um, the farm was a great experience for me because I got to learn about crop rotation, which I feel like if people don't know about crop rotation, they need to get up on it because it is one of the biggest metaphors for the creative mind in that, you know, when they plant vegetables one season, you know, that extracts so much from the soil, they have to like re-up and like plant leguminous crops that can reintroduce a lot of nitrogen to the soil and rebuilds the soil structure. And that's exactly how we are as creative beings. You know, when you create in one spot, it gets depleted. It's just nature. And at some point you're gonna find yourself um, even because you're digging through the same well and it's running dry and it's great if you try other things. You'll be amazed at how good you are <laughs> at other things because as human beings, we're a multiplicity of things and we should always take advantage of the multiplicity, mainly because when you come back to the thing, you come back with new eyes, you come back with new, a new appreciation for it. You're ever fresh. You also stay away from the metrics, as Ayana was talking about. You stay, you're, you're unbothered, let's put it that way, by the metrics because you know that you can uh, turn around and move on to the next thing and you're free. And I know, listen, we're not great at everything. No human being is. But the idea of crop rotation, I'll call it creative rotation, is something that I really wish for everyone in that, you know, you try things and you may be amazed at how good you are at that thing. I mean, it could be the culinary arts, who knows what, how great you are at chefing shit. You know, you don't know until you do it and you go, oh my God, I'm good at it. It is a creative outlet. It allows me to live. It allows me to breathe in a way that I'm not locked in. And so I really wish that for everyone. It's just live, create loving, embracing it all, the difficulty, the joy, and just zigzagging through it because that is life. Last words, last words. I just, I have been vibing and just heart, my heart is so full. It's been so, so lovely to talk with you and really just from one, from one black creator to another, really just, I hear you. 